I'm Scott Cooper, and welcome to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. In this episode, I welcome Matt Lowry, the Academy Director of Atlanta United, and Chris Norris, the Head Coach of Men's Soccer at the College of Women Mary. This is a wide-ranging conversation that explores the MLS Academy process, the development of a professional mindset, whether headed to the pros or to play for a college program. All of the aspects discussed are the same at the MLS Academy level onto any aspiring athlete. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com slash matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast, so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on social media as well. The links can be found at matchplayrecruit.com. Um, so today we have uh, Matt Lowry, who is the Academy Director of uh, Atlanta United. Um, by way of, you were at the Richmond Strikers, right? For Yeah. Yeah, it started a few years and yeah, joined Atlanta in July 2016. So I've been down here ever since. So it's been a, it's been a journey. Cool. And um, we also have Chris Norris, who's the head coach at, where are you? William and Mary, uh, men's soccer. Um, Norris, say something so we, uh, so that people know what your voice sounds like. If they're not watching. Good afternoon. That's soothing. Um, it's a dulcet <laughs> tone there. Um, so yeah, hey Matt, um, bro- thank you for joining us. Um, this is going to be pretty enlightening, I think, for kind of like where soccer is going in this country, and um, you know the attitude towards developing youth in America and, and all that good stuff. Um, first, let's get kind of your history, and you know, let our listeners know who you are and how you grew up in the game and and that sort of thing. Yeah, um, I was. Uh average to below average soccer player, but I grew up in a really, really small rural area of Virginia called Rappahannock County. Um, so played for a couple different clubs, but ended up at um, Charlottesville, Soka, playing for Brian Cook, who was a, an amazing mentor to me at the time. And he was one of the main guys that kind of pushed me to continue playing. I was in love with the game, um, but, you know, had certain talents and wasn't that great. So found a good pathway in Division Three. Uh, which was a perfect for me. It was amazing for me, um, but I ended up at University of Mary Washington um, with Roy Gordon. So I played there all four years and really just wanted to stay in the game. Knew that my playing career was going to come to a, a dramatic end in my senior year of, of college. So I got into coaching. I got into coaching pretty young. Um, so my sophomore year of, of college, I would train with the the college team. And then I'd hop in my car, drive 10 minutes up the road to Stafford. And and I had a U9 boys team that I worked with as well. So continue with them through college. So I was lucky. Um, I had really good mentors around me. I had really good people around me um, that kept pushing me to continue with the coaching badges, the coaching licenses. Um, And when I graduated college, I was able to go pretty much full-time in the coaching. Um, I say full-time, the money wasn't great. But it, it was really perfect for me and what I wanted to do. So I was coaching at Stafford Soccer, as I said, and then Prince William for a year and then ended up at Richmond Strikers. I spent three years down at Richmond Strikers. Um, Bob Jenkins was there. who's was an amazing mentor of mine. Um, Aaron Bruner, Michael Malazzo, who's at New England Revolution now. So it's just some really good people. 
Um, and then July 2016, had the opportunity to come down to Atlanta United as uh, the U12 head coach. So jumped at it, chance to be part of an MLS organization and, an, and a brand new MLS organization. It was really exciting to be part of it from the get-go. Um, and I've been here ever since. So coached most of the teams within the academy at certain times, had a short stint with the second team as an assistant, and then even shorter stint with the first team as an assistant. Um, but uh, currently in my second year wrapping up, just wrapped up our second year as, as academy director and huge learning curve, um, but enjoying it, figuring it out, learning. Um, but it's been really, really fun. It's been a fun journey. So what's the role of an academy director at, at an MLS cl- you know, club? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Um, we have every age group currently um, from 12 to 19. So last year we had a population of about 142 academy kids aged 10 all the way to 18 and 19. Um, they play in, in several different leagues. So a lot of it is monitoring each individual player in the process because we believe in individual development within the team. So it's not team development. It's all about the individual player, but it has to be within the team concept. So it's really important that all our teams play in a similar way. It's equally important that all our coaches coach in a similar way because our players won't spend all year with one team. Almost zero players at our academy are going to spend the entire time within their age group. We're constantly moving players from team to team to challenge them, sometimes to ground them and humble them, um, or sometimes to move them down in age group. But move them into an appropriate level where they can gain some confidence. So that's really my main role is who's moving where, when, and why. I'm making sure that we're intentional with our player movement to get the best out of, out of the players. Right. Um, and so this is just boys, right? There's no, uh, there's no girls team, right? Yeah. Um, and so when you are all of the, like, do you guys as academy directors throughout the MLS system, do you guys talk to each other and are trying to develop teams the same way? Or is it just franchise focused? And then, you know, you guys compete, you know, obviously throughout the year um, at different events. But um, is it kind of a rising tide raises all ships or is it a uh, is it just individually individual club focused? I think it's a little bit of both. We're directors in constant chat with one another. Um, I, I talk with a lot of directors weekly, some of them daily. Um, so we're all pretty connected um, mm-hmm. and good friends. A lot of us, which is the fun of it. We compete like hell on the weekends, but um, you know we're, we're we're good buddies off the field. So, but each club is a little bit specific in terms of the type of player they're looking for, and each club has a very specific style of play. So in Atlanta. You know, we want high tempo, we want to press high, but we also want to keep the ball and build when we have it and, and play through possession, look to attack through possession. Red Bulls don't want the ball. You know, they, they want to attack you, press you. When they get it, they want to go forward right away. Um, or like a, a San Jose Earthquakes who do an incredible job of building through all the thirds and playing in a really patient uh, possession-dominant style. So I think each club is specific with their own style of play. But I would say that we work very closely together in, in terms of trying to push each other. We're constantly asking questions. You know, what are you doing at your training facility? What does this look like? You know, what was powerful to you to talk to your coaches or your players about? So I think there is a definite rising tides going on, but each tide is a little different and specific to each city and each club. Gotcha. Um, 
and you say you start at U12s. Um, how do you do you get kids there? Like, is it all from Atlanta for you guys, or you know, what's your recruiting branches? What do those look like, and and uh, how do you grow your club and, and find the best talent? Yeah, it's it's first of all, the word is patience. It's that's to make it. The kids need patience, and they need to to. There's going to be years of suffering and there's going to be years of, of, you know, fantastic positivity, but just going and going through the, the process is important. Um, but yeah, I think that that's that patient piece is the most important thing in terms of our population. 95% of our kids are from Atlanta. Um, we do look up and down Southeast a little bit. We've had a good, um, we've had some good Richmond kids that have come in, um, which has been really, really nice. And that probably goes back to my own roots and, and knowing those coaches up there and knowing those families up there. Um, we do have homestays available, which is basically a, a couple different houses that um, we can house certain players in from out of town. They just have to be very special individuals. It's, it's one thing to be talented enough on the field to move eight hours away from your family, but you need to have a certain personality to do that as well. That's not easy, especially when, you know, we're asking these kids sometimes to move at age 15 or age 16. Some aren't ready. So we have to be really cautious um, that it's the right kid talent-wise and it's also the right kid from maturity, mentality. Is he going to be a handle being on his own? Um, but the majority of our players are from Atlanta. Right. So from a young age, how are you uh, kind of identifying, you know, like what's, in, what's standing out to you guys? Because I'm sure a lot of the same characteristics are the characteristics that Norris at his level is looking for as well. So, um, you know, what's a differentiator for you know, you're watching a U10 match and or you're one of your scouts is and how are you saying to yourself or to each other that, you know, this kid is worth bringing it? It's a really hard one for us. There's no crystal ball in youth soccer. Um, we know that you know, every single generation that we have, 95% of our, our players are not going to be professional athletes. That's just, that's just facts. That's statistics from every club all over the world. Um, so knowing that it's, it's really difficult to say which ones could make it long-term, but in terms of bringing them into our academy, obviously we look at the technical and, and tactical and, and try to have a comparison within that age group. An 11 year old may not be able to hit a 60 yard diagonal ball and that's okay in the moment. Can he control the ball? Can he deal with tight spaces? Um, and does he have ways of impacting the game? And I think that impact is the thing that we look for the most. It's really nice to have a good soccer player. At the end of the day, professionals impact games. They stop goals. They start attacks. They you know create goals with that final pass or beating that player, or they score goals. So we're constantly looking at those four categories. What do you do and what are you great at? You need to be good at one of them. And there's a lot of really good soccer players that can kind of move the ball side to side. This is great. How are you impacting the game? What are you doing? Stopping goals, starting attacks, creating attacks, or scoring goals. So that's really important for us because we don't know what they're going to look like physically at age 18. We can try. We do a lot of physical analysis. We do some genetic analysis. Like We try, but there's just no crystal ball to that. And the last piece and the most important piece is we don't know what they're going to be like mentally. Um, these little 13 year olds, they all love the game. They're extremely driven, but when puberty hits and, and they start to think about other avenues, this is okay. And this is fine. We just want the kid that's completely obsessed and driven to be the best. And we don't know who that's going to be. So right. the mental side of it's a bit, a bit of a question mark. 
Right. So once you get them in your system and, you know, you've obviously they're, they're good players, right? That's a given, but how do you continue to, to develop them from a mental standpoint and, you know, how do you get, keep them focused? You know, that's, how do you, you know, that that's gotta be one of the bigger challenges that you guys face as they go through puberty and, and into driving cars and that sort of thing. hundred percent. Yeah. We, we try to do it culturally. It's difficult. Um, but a lot of our culture to talk to them and the parents, we, we chat with the parents all the time. We bring them in, we have parent meetings, we bring in outside resources, but our message is always the same. Be patient, get through the process. We'll take care of the player. You know, if at the end of the day, we do think that, you know, we need to release the player and it's not the right environment for them. We're doing that for the good of the player because he's going to be better in a different environment. Um, so we just try to preach that we care about the human. We care about the kid. Be patient through the process. There will be years. Every single player goes through it where they're just not quite making the starting lineup. It could be at U15, which is a big jump for a lot of players. It could be at U17. It could be at our second team level. It could be at the professional level. But there's going to be some point in your career where you're scraping for some minutes and better to learn that at younger ages than be the absolute best and then get smacked with that in the face when you're 18, 19. Um, so that's kind of our messaging. We try to do it culturally. We do have a mental skills coach for our first team who does an amazing job of trickling down some really great information and a good mental skills curriculum down to the academy. So we're hoping to ramp that side of it up and, and talking about resilience and grit and, and these things that I think are really important for long-term development. Um, but we do try to do it culturally with our language, with how we talk to them um, and informing the parents. You're going to take care of your kid. We care about your child um, and, and, and kind of trust us through that process. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about kind of the history and how things have evolved into where they are now from, you know, the Development Academy, which I think was like mid two thousands or whatever it was, and then has grown into what it is now and what the overall, you know, mission of us soccer and MLS is to get players to the pro level to, you know, just kind of improve soccer overall in the, in the U S. Yeah. I think the biggest issue we have in the United States and it's a weapon as well as a problem is it's a huge, huge, huge country. So when you go to England and you play for Manchester United Academy, you can drive 20 minutes and be at three or four other professional academies at the youth level. You cannot do that in the United States. So the travel is immense. So the Developmental Academy, I think you're right. I think it was 2005, 2006, something like that. They started the Developmental Academy to try to bring these top academies together to compete together, whether it was at a showcase, whether it was through league play. And it was an ask financially for the, the clubs but we got to compete. So I think the growth of soccer in this country um, has meant that a national league makes a lot of sense. Um, yes, there's a bit of a, a drive or a flight or you know a bus to get there, um, but the clubs everywhere are starting to get better. As you mentioned earlier, it's, it's a bit of rising tides. Um, so right now the DEA actually folded um, in COVID and MLS, took on a new national league called MLS Next, which started in 2021, uh, right after COVID. And it's it's the same kind of process. It's a national league. We play regionally up and down the Southeast all year. We'll get a couple different showcases, um, usually one in California, and then we try to compete. We end up with playoffs at the end, some really cool tournaments as we go. Um, but I think that's 
that's the biggest thing that we as a country are, are starting to figure out. We don't have it right yet. We're starting to figure out that we just have to attack this travel and, you know, the best need to play against the best. That's, there's no other mathematical equation to creating top athletes. You've got to compete against guys that are going to punch you in the face as much as you're punching them. Um, right. so, you know, that competitive cauldron trying to grow that together with this huge country is difficult, but I think we're getting closer and closer. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of soccer in the U S um, and you guys are, you know, for the, from the youth standpoint are at the top of the food chain. Um, you guys have, um, a, a lot of support and, and that sort of thing. Um, so for the, for the people who don't have access to MLS next teams, um, you know, how are they, how do they get involved in it? You know, how do they get their kid looked at, so to speak, or identified to, to possibly, you know, come play for an MLS side or, uh, MLS next team. Um, it's really yeah, what I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's other leagues as well within the United States. I think ECNL does a really, really good job of having a similar landscape of, of national um, landscape of the league. And then they play regionally and they come together. Um, you know, we're in MLS next and I, all the MLS academies are in MLS next. So I think it is a good level, but ECNL has, has done an amazing job of, you know, having their own pathway um, for players and MLS academies scout like crazy. Um, some more than others. Again, Atlanta is pretty, we're pretty strong within Atlanta. We want to give back to our community and we have good players here. We don't need to be traveling to California to look for players. Um, but there's a lot of, of clubs that maybe don't have a local market as strong and they are out there scouting ECNL games, scouting MLS next games um, and best players get found. I, I really do believe that. I, I hope we're at the point, you know, as big of the country is that top players can find a way. I mean, Daryl DK was a cool story, you know, middle of Oklahoma had to find a way to, to, to be around players, but he was found funded at UVA and, and had a really, really good career from there. So I think the scouting is good enough, you know, if, for the messaging to any player that wants to be at an MLS Academy or, or an MLS next Academy, it's keep working, keep training. There's so many eyeballs out there right now. Um, but ECNL and MLS next are kind of the two, bigger leagues in the landscape that get scouted the most and are, and are really seen the most, at least at the MLS Academy level. Gotcha. Um, so we, we've kept Norris quiet for too long here. Um, let's talk about um, high school age kids as they get older. And then, you know, what are the pathways out of your guys' system? And, um, you know, what are the options that, that kids are finding um, as they, you know, graduate out of high school age and into whatever's next for them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, from your standpoint, Matt, I mean, you are trying to develop kids to go to your first team or, or you know, to become a professional. So there's that. But then I'm assuming that Norris and, and his, you know, college soccer coaches are also looking at those kids. And um, so talk about kind of the interaction between an MLS Academy, you guys, and then, you know, who ends up in college and, and where a kid from MLS next is typically ending up and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, from us, 
uh, we know that 95 to 98% of our kids, each generation, are going to go to college, and we celebrate that. That's not a bad thing by any means. I think our country has an incredible opportunity when players don't make it pro at, at 16, 17, 18. They can go into a place where they get an amazing education, play really, really competitive, high-level soccer, and can possibly come out as a pro afterwards. Um, so we really push the college pathway. We tell our younger parents, college should be priority A. If a pro contract comes, celebrate it. But you should be looking to come here to Atlanta United Academy to go play at the best college you can and get a scholarship if you can um, to have an education. So we're really big on that messaging. We have a full-time college coordinator who's also a U19 coach, um, Ricky Davey, who came out of Georgia State. He was that assistant for, for several years. Um, and he does an incredible job of making sure that all of our players are communicating to colleges, that the timeline is correct, that they've done everything they need to do in terms of tests and education um, to keep all those doors open. So we're really committed that every generation we get through, 100% of those players land somewhere, professionally or college. But we don't want to lose with any kid. Um, and we've been able to do that since the pandemic. It was really hard coming out of the pandemic, but we've been able to do that with with all three generations out uh, after the pandemic. So we're really proud of that. But we really push the college pathway. Um, in a lot of ways, it's, it's a better place for players because they will have that full-time education um, regardless of where their soccer career goes. They're going to have an amazing opportunity to give back to the world. Um, so from our standpoint, we're big on it. We have people in place to make sure that kids are taken care of. And culturally, we're always pushing it. Norris, you got anything to add or ask or um, like yeah. that? Yeah, I'm curious, Matt. Do you guys uh, track statistically maybe league-wide or even just from your organization um, how many kids are – making it and i don't know what what the metric would be to determine making it but um how many kids are are signing homegrown contracts and then making first team appearances maybe versus guys that have gone away and played for even two or three years of of college soccer and then are are making first team appearances with with teams in the league yeah that's a really good question um i do have the metrics somewhere i probably won't be able to pull them right off my head but Generally, we know that a 16, 17, 18-year-old isn't going to be ready for first-team soccer. Right now, we have Caleb Wiley, um, who started with us at U12, came all the way through. He just turned 18 this December, just graduated high school a week ago, and he's been a, a number one starter for us on the first team. He got a full national team cap um, against the scrimmage against Mexico and was one of the better players, in my humble opinion, at the U20 World Cup for the United States. So he's amazing. And he's going to have an amazing career in the game, but he's one out of a million, you know, and that's a huge congrats to Caleb, the work he put in and, and the natural talents that he has. Um, everyone else, you know, the, the metrics of signing professionally at 16, 17 and be able to affect the first team level. It is not easy. Physically, it's very hard. Uh, mentally, it's really hard. So we do find that the players that go into college, even for a year or two years and then coming back out professionally, they're more ready for it. Whether that's maturity level, whether that's the physical, I do think college, you know, does a really good job of preparing their players physical. Could be the, the shorter season, but we find players coming out of college, they're ready physically to, to, to handle the MLS. Um, so we have found, you know, our own success stories 
have been a little bit better with players going into college for a year or two and then coming back. Machop Chol being a great one with our first team now, played four years at Wake Forest, um, doing great. So these these are these are kind of the storylines that we look at and the metrics that we try to try to take a look at as as we continue. You mentioned the the opportunity that exists in the U.S. Um, to continue playing and getting an education at a reasonably high level, <clears throat> and how unique that is to the world. Can you kind of draw comparisons developmentally? Um, or make distinctions even between maybe college soccer versus a, a pro or a guy that's been in a pro academy, a kid that's been in a pro academy, but maybe doesn't jump at 18 directly into the first team. You know, what is a guy like that doing from 18 to 22 in most countries outside the U S yeah, good question. Um, obviously, you know, our guys within the U.S. and in the college system, that education is so huge, and I, and I think that's the piece that gets lost in in a lot of other countries. Is you know, I know in England, for instance, if you don't sign that scholarship at 16 and you're released, you got to kind of figure that out um, when you're done with high school. And yes, the university system is there, um, but it's not as available, and the scholarship system that's in place is not as available as I understand it. You know, so a lot of those players from 18 to 22 are trying to figure out and they drop into lower league levels. Um, and, and a lot of times the further down the rung you go in terms of the league levels, it gets more physical and a little bit less soccer. And it's very, very difficult to do well or perform well, you know, getting battered as, a, as an 18, 19 year old um, may not physically be ready for that level. So it's really difficult. And I think what happens a lot of the time Unfortunately, is you have a 15, 16 year old who's absolutely phenomenal and signs a contract or, or decides, you know, professional is, is the way for me. And three years later, it's a little bit of a different story because other players around them have grown, they're physically more mature, and the same talents that this player had at 15, 16 are not there anymore. It's difficult. Development's not linear. If you're the best at 12, does not mean you're going to be the best at 15. Certainly doesn't mean you're going to be the best at 18. There's ups and downs to it. Um, so that's why I think college is such an amazing pathway within this country. You have that education. If, if professional soccer doesn't end up being the best thing for you, it's better to make that decision at 22 than 16. That's kind of the biggest scenario for me. And, and in other countries, they're forced to make that decision at 16. Um, and you don't know yet. You just don't know. Yeah, um, go back to uh, Caleb. What's his last name? Wiley. W-I-L-E-Y. Um, you mentioned, you know, he started with you guys at U12 and he put in the work. I mean, what what did you see out of him? You know, what did you observe that he did that was kind of a differentiating factor from a work ethic standpoint? Um, yeah, what... Was he there on off days? Was he staying after training? You know, that sort of thing. I think, yeah, the coolest thing about Caleb, I always smile. He was not the best player at U12. He was always above average. You know, we were even looking back at some of our notes the other day and, and, and laughing. We always had Caleb listed as he's in the starting lineup, but he wasn't number one, right? He, he wasn't the guy that like get Caleb in, but he just, he was always just good enough to, to be around the team and, and to be around it. But at 14, 15, he was different. 
And, only, and, and I say that not in terms of his ability, but more in terms of his mentality. And you hit the nail on the head, Scott. When there was an off day, you know, Caleb was, was training. Um, and I had a good relationship with Caleb's dad. And I remember that U15 summer, you know, Chris Wiley, Caleb's dad, you know, texting me, what is wrong with this kid? He's trained every single day. He's gone to the park every single day. He's not hanging out with any friends. And he was like, he was coming with to me like as a, as a worried parent, you know, and, and that, that was the difference. And you could just see it in every week, you know, at 16, 17, you started to see a different player. Like, oh my God, this kid is getting better and better and better and better. But it was mental. It was mental. He had the natural tools. I'm not saying he didn't. Um, he was a good soccer player at 11, 12, 13. You know, the, the coaching around him wasn't great because it was me at that age. <laughs> and he just mentally, he just said, nope, uh, this is me. I'm obsessed. I love this. I'm going to do this. No one's going to stop me. And nothing has. But I think, as you said, Scott, it's the work he put out off the field. Um, his work rate on the field was fantastic. But a lot of other players were as well. We didn't know that Caleb was going to be the one at 15. But we started to look at him a little bit differently just because of the amount of work he was putting on outside of, of what he did here. Yeah, I mean, what do you think made it click for him at whatever point? You know, what what made him say, "I gotta, I gotta put in more work than everyone else." I mean, what what was it that did it for him? You think? I've, I've asked him this, and I he didn't have a good answer, and neither do I. But I'll give you the honest truth. He said, "I don't know, Coach. I just I was obsessed." He was like, "I couldn't stop thinking about it. I went to sleep thinking about soccer. I woke up thinking about soccer." All I wanted to do is train. And I think that was, and that's a quote directly from him. I'll never forget that statement. All I wanted to do was train. I think he fell in love with, with the process. I think he fell, almost got addicted to going out with the ball every single day and training. And it just become, became part of his behavior and part of who he was. Even to this day, you know, sports science will yell at him because they'll go to the park. He's a pro. He's a signed professional and he's out in the local park in Atlanta, you know, trying to hit crossbar challenge from 40 yards away. And, you know, sports science figures out and think they're going to, he's going to tear a hamstring and yells at him. He, he is himself, but he's, he's, it's, it's for him. He just couldn't stop. Um, so definitely a, a fun, fun process to be around. Matt, on the flip side of that, without naming names, um, I mean, can you think specifically of guys that at 14 or 15 you were nailed on to, be where Caleb is now and for one reason or another just haven't made it and and what are those reasons in your in your humble opinion yeah um, without naming names there's a lot of them um, there's a lot of them I think you know you look at at the U15 year for a lot of MLS academies and you can pick out six seven eight players that you look they could make it this is going to be interesting they're all really really good they're all really talented um, but the one or two that that come through that's a difference maker and I want to say, you know, the mentality piece, it's hard to view. And a lot of kids do have a good mentality. Yeah, Caleb was different in a lot of ways, but a lot of players had his mentality. Um, but I, I, I think it's the environment that Caleb was in was always not perfect for him, but it was the right level of challenge. He was very rarely in teams or in a lot of games over a stretch of time where he was dominant, you know, and that I think is the most important piece. And that's why I mentioned at the end of this call, we try to do a lot of player movement and be intentional with our player movement. We don't want any player to feel drowning or 
you know, swimming so smoothly that they don't have to worry about it. We always want them struggling just a little bit, just a little bit. And, and that's why, you know, going back to that patience piece, some players don't like that. Some players want the success and they want to score a ton of goals or they want to be the MVP and they want these accolades. Those are great. I don't know if they're going to help you long term other than putting on your resume and, and saying, I did this. You know, I think it's that that challenge of they have to be challenged and they have to do a little bit of suffering every day. You have to suffer a little bit. And the players that get through that um, really, really progress. So in Caleb's case, at what point and how far did you push him ahead? Yeah. Either an older age group or the second team or? The second team was a jump for him and we were, we were a little worried. So the story is actually a cool one. It was, it was right after COVID. Um, so we just kind of, the world was slowly opening up. MLS was in their little bubble down in Orlando where they were playing games and we started with the twos. I was actually an assistant coach with the twos at the time. Tony Ann was the head coach, who was the original academy director here at Atlanta, a huge mentor of mine. Long story short, Caleb was 16 years old and we had a left back, Caleb's a left back. We had an older left back, 26 years old, um, awesome guy. And through COVID, he actually had a couple health issues that he had to go back home to Canada to figure out. So Caleb kind of fell into a starting role at Atlanta United 2, which was in the USL Championship. And we were a little scared for him because we didn't think that he was going to be ready for that level. And, you know, he probably wasn't. <laughs> he probably wasn't. So that was the biggest jump for him, I think, um, in terms of figuring that out. But he, he swam, you know, to use that analogy again. We threw him in the deep end. He had some good games. He had probably more poor games at that time um, than he would have liked. But he got through it and he learned each time. Um, so I think there is a point, you know, Chris, where you just have to, you just have to throw them in and say, all right, you, you've, you've done everything at this point. This next one's going to be a jump. And sometimes it's the reserve team, the first team, sometimes the academy to the reserve team. That's why I think the biggest jump for Caleb was. Sometimes it's, it's 15 to 17 because that, that gap of, of uh, physical maturation can be huge. Um, but for Caleb, it was that jump into the second team and, yeah, there were some there were some games where you wanted to say, "Man, this is this is gonna be tough for you," but he was able to get through them. But it was fun to watch. So, without you guys, don't have U nineteen, correct? We do, we do actually. Oh, yeah. We play in okay. a local league, um, so we don't do much traveling with them. We play in a local semi pro league, um, but we do believe in that group. So again, we want to get them to college. So, cool. So, is that like a a gap year kind of kid or yep yep it's uh it's players that aren't going to be around the second team or the first team as much they're more on a college pathway which is again not a bad thing at all it's something we celebrate at this club and that u19 team they play locally and they'll play in three or four um college showcases throughout the year we host one ourselves which is a pretty cool event we did the first one last year um chris here of course invited please come down um but yeah we, we just basically make sure that those kids are taken care of and have a have a good college pathway the spring is always fun and interesting because those kids know that they're going to college and and you know they get a little loose sometimes and 19 coach loses its hair a little bit because he's got nine kids at training but no it's it's a good group and and we think it's really important to take care of these kids and get them through but we play in the upsl Again, a semi-professional kind of local league. 
they play against 25, 26, 28 year olds a lot of times. So it's a challenge for them. A lot of times we're the better soccer team, but it's a physical push. Um, but we just try to make sure they're, they're prepared for college, they're prepared for the next step. Um, but yeah, it's, it's more of a gap year and a place for those players in between to, to stay and play. <laughs> um, so the kids that do end up, I mean, they're, they're going to know most likely that they're on a college pathway rather than a pro path pathway to begin with. Um, how are you, you guys as a club, um, helping them find the right college? Um, how are you interacting with coaches? out in the country, um, you know, what, how does that, what does that look like um, compared to the average, I shouldn't say average, that's not the right word, but a player who doesn't have the support of an MLS club, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that, that a lot of that falls on Ricky Davey um, and the college coordinator. He does a really good job. Um, we put a lot on the kid. We really want the kid to take uh, ownership over this next step. Um, we believe, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong here, but we really believe that the college coaches would prefer to hear from the kid rather than the mom or the dad. So it's, you know, making sure that the kid is accountable, the kid is communicating, and we make all our kids do this. So it, even at 16, 17, if a player's turn, I'm going to be pro. We'll see, right? Communicate with colleges, follow this pathway. I know that not all of them listen to us in that, in that manner, um, but we really try to make sure that they're doing it. But Ricky does a great job. He has a curriculum in place where basically every two months he'll either have a parent meeting um, for a certain age group or a player meeting for a certain age group and make sure that the parents are educated and aware of you know the steps for NCAA eligibility and, and all of those items um, and to make sure that the player is doing the work as well. And then when showcases coming around, trying to be ultra communicative, you know, prior where kids are and what roster, um, you know, positionally how they play GPAs, all of that kind of stuff is communicated to college coaches. And then afterwards, making sure that that we can be, you know, available to those calls as well. Honestly and openly, we probably need to do a better job of, of, of communicating around those events. Um, but we really are big on, on trying to make sure all our players have a, a great place to land in terms of college. Yeah, Norris, I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, a player coming out of MLS next and, you know, how, like, compare and contrast that from other places and other sources that you're recruiting players from and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there, there are some probabilities associated with the, the MLS uh, pro academies. So, you know, they, they're organized. Um, they are usually, you know, they have a mission of trying to produce some guys that are going to ultimately be pros. So there's a, a, a level of, of certain level, minimum level of athleticism associated with most of the kids. Um, there's the, the idea that because of, you know, guys like Matt and the resources that are available that those kids are going to be pretty well trained throughout their career. Um, you know, most of the time <clears throat> there's a high likelihood that because of the amount of time that these kids have spent on their development, that there's some passion there for the game. There's some, some motivation, some self-discipline, um, you know, outside of just those uber talented guys that can, you know, 
kind of get by on talent, um, which there aren't too many. Most of the kids are that are coming out of that sort of environment are, um, you know, well on the way to having a, a professional mentality um, about training and playing. So, you know, there's a lot of things like that. The downside for maybe somebody like me who's not at a power five school is that uh, everyone knows that. And so there are a lot of people looking at Matt's kids and, and they're, that there becomes a lot of competition for those guys when it comes to recruiting. But, you know, in order to get the top players, you're usually going to encounter quite a bit of competition. So. Yeah. Um, Norris, when you say like a professional mindset, um, what define that a little bit for people who, you know, maybe haven't experienced that and, you know, how are they going to develop a, well, I'll let Matt say how he's developing professional mindset, but how would you identify someone who, a player who you see who, you know, is exhibiting a professionalism about them, um, you know, from a training standpoint and then from, you know, interacting with you even and that sort of thing that, uh, how do you identify that? Uh, I don't know about identifying and I think it's important to try to define it first, um, which you did ask me to do. So, you know, Matt's touched on a number of points already, um, and I just did there as well. Like kids that are aspirational, you know, that that, that have a dream of trying to uh, become as good a player as they can be. And you know, there's a lot of people out there, a lot of young young folks, whether it's soccer or not, that would love to be professional athletes. But there's a difference between wanting to be a professional athlete and then being able to grind and put in the work that it takes if your talent also matches up with, with that aspiration. So, um, you know, I mentioned some of the qualities that we see in people like that. They're ambitious. They are driven. They're highly self-motivated. Um, you know, Matt mentioned earlier being resilient and having grit, you know, being able to, to bounce back from setbacks, you know, being able to, um, go several years where you're not one of the top players in the age group, maybe, but still hang on to that that aspiration, that dream of being the best player that you can be. And hopefully, you know, being the best player that you can be makes you a pro or gives you an opportunity to maybe sign a pro contract someday. Um, you know, that's how, how I would sort of define it. And we, you know, we're looking for the same kinds of things at our level. Um, you know, I really enjoy being at a, a school like William & Mary, where by the nature of our academics and, and the high selectivity of our university from an admissions standpoint, the, the, the student athletes that we're after often have many of those qualities, sort of, they've either developed them over time or they were sort of inherent in their, their character. Um, as it turns out, they also, most of them have those kinds of aspirations and qualities when it comes to their sport as well. And so, you know, working with guys that, that really like to grind, like to get after it, you know, is it's cool. It's fun. Yeah. So Matt, how do you ingrain kind of that discipline mindset in, in your players so that they can be successful at whatever level comes next for them? Yeah, we, we grade it. So we do play reviews every eight weeks. We sit down with the player and parent. Um, parent is not mandatory at, at age 17 and rarely does the, the kid let the parent be there at age 17, but all the way through that up to that, we, we make sure that the parent is there. Um, and we have a, basically a, a report card, 
um, where the player on one side is, is all technical and tactical and it's all soccer related to their position if they're a little older and more general if they're a little bit younger. Um, and we just say, look, this needs improvement. We love this from you, all these kind of items. And then you flip it over and it's all the mental side. And we kind of list it out, everything that, and it's a big list, but we want to go through that intentionally. And, and if they're showing a lack of emotional control, they're yelling at the ref, um, they're yelling at their teammates. Um, if they show unprofessional behavior after the game, not cleaning up trash, not helping the coach, um, you know, not helping their teammates or, or going off to the side and pouting, these are noticed. Um, and we talk about them as a staff. That's why literally two sides of this cheat, one side is all mental. And it's kind of intentional to show the player, cool, the soccer is important. This is going to take you further than you think. And it's really, really important. Um, so we literally grade it. We name all the items that we think are really important, we list them out, we describe it, and we grade it. And it's a, it's a rag system, so red, amber, green. Um, so red being, you need to improve this really quickly. This is not good. Um, yellow, amber, it's, hey, getting a little bit better at this, continue to work on it. And green, like, this is, a, this is really good for you. This is excellent. Um, but that's, that's how we really kind of keep tabs on them and, and, make, and show them that we care and that this is important. Um, and then lastly, I'll just mention, because Tony Annan, again, my predecessor here at, at Atlanta, did an incredible job of, he had a small cultural detail that to this day is really important for our kids. If you come, you know, Scott and Chris, and you come to Atlanta at training ground, and you come watch a session, every single kid will walk by you, shake your hand and say hello and say good morning. And that is straight from Tony Annan's playbook. He is huge on players showing um, that professionalism, that maturity. Um, and you'll have a 10-year-old run up to you and, and kind of tug at your leg and you'll want to shake your hand. And it, does the 10-year-old really understand why? No, but over the course of five, six years, they start to understand how important it is to, to be a pro and, and, and to be polite to people and to say hello. Um, so I just wanted to say that because, again, that was, that was Tony's thing and it's something that we really care about and we're passionate about to this day. Um, but it's huge. It's huge to kind of – we have to grow the mental side for these kids and – they need to be great humans at the end of the day. They're great soccer players, awesome. But all of them need to be great humans. Yeah, I mean, so do these kids, do they talk about these things? They get their, their reports and they're, like, talking to each other about what they need to improve? I mean, is it something that they're – I'm sure it's different per kid, but, you know, are they out in the open with it and, and they're helping each other out or is it so competitive that they're that they're not helping each other out with it? You know, I'm sure that it sounds like your culture is kind of a, a help each other out kind of thing, but we hope so. Um, yeah. We hope so. I mean, I'll be honest, we, we recruit, you know, we have about 18 to 20 kids per roster. It's the most competitive kids in Atlanta every single time. So we, we want them to work together and, and we always preach, be a good teammate. This is one of the items that we talk about in our mental, but you know, these kids are fighting each other every day to try to get a starting spot or try to be the one that gets pushed up to the next team. So I think it depends on the kid. Some are pretty open about where they sit and their grades and, and you know, they find the other kid who's got similar things and find a way to work together on these things. Those are the cool moments, but there's a lot of kids that take it, you know, push it, push it down their pocket. Don't tell anyone about it. I just hope that they, they take it intentionally, that they take it seriously and that they work on it. You know, if they're out in the open with it, cool. If you don't want to tell anyone about it, that's fine. Just, you know, let's work on these things. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I saw a Kobe quote, and I brought this up before, but um, it would be interesting to hear your guys' reaction to this, where 
I think he was coaching a youth team and and he uh, he was having the kids run after training and one of the dads was yelling at his kid you know come on dig it out you know grind it out blah 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 and Kobe stayed quiet and came up to the dad after training and, and said don't ever do that again and he goes I want him to decide to push it and and give the extra effort I want him to develop the you know that internal conversation and decision making um, as an athlete and as a person. Um, how how do you guys identify that within young athletes and student athletes, Norris? And you know where do you see that mostly, and and, and when is it important to you? I guess just kind of you know what I'm talking about, and you know it, when you see it. Where do you see it, and 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 that sort of thing? Yeah, for for us, it's it's puberty. So right at at fourteen, fifteen, we know that the twelve year olds, the thirteen year olds, they're still really they're they're role model learners. They wanna they want to impress people. They want to impress their dad, their mom, their coach. You know, they're really big on that. When coach says, "Hey, Colin, I want you to run through that wall," yes, sir. Right? They're going to go for that. But once they hit puberty, they start to be a little bit more interested about what their peer thinks. Um, they're, they get a little bit more, they don't want to listen to their parent as much. They don't want to listen to their coach as much. They kind of start to have that teenager attitude, especially boys, 15-year-old boys. <laughs> so that's the moment where we start to look. And then that's why I refer to Caleb at that 14, 15 year, because he was different. Like mentally, he just that's all he wanted to do. And that in, internal drive that you mentioned that Kobe was looking for, oh, my God through the roof. Um, so that's, that's the moment that we start to look and we, we think of puberty and that U15 year really as the breaking point. You know, U15 is a tough year for our kids. It's really competitive. We play a lot of other MLS academies. We have Generation Adidas Cup, which is against international academies. It's hard. And the kids that can go through that and love it and endure it and get better from it, we think have a good chance. And some of them, I don't want to say break, but you know, some of them end up going, you know what? I love soccer. I'd like to do it at a, at a different level. Or, you know, this is my, my dad's been pushing me all the way. You know, I'm interested in other things. All of this is okay. But we look at U15 as, as the year where we find out. Yeah. Yeah, and we, it's similar for us, except that, that we're usually starting to track kids a little bit later than that, a year or two later. So, you know, behaviors when, and we're reliant on um, usually, at least initially, it's watching games and trying to assess behavior from, from, you know, what a kid's doing in game. So, you know, it may be, to your analogy, it may be something like a recovery run. Is a guy making all the recovery runs, you know, um, or is he cutting corners defensively? Um, you know, it, it might be some like some of the things that Matt mentioned earlier. We might stick around after a game is over and watch how a kid responds to a result, you know, how he interacts with teammates or a referee or coaches um, after a disappointing result. So there's a lot of that that goes into it. It's just about observing behavior, though, more than anything. And we've said this multiple times in various podcasts, like uh, someone is almost always watching, you know, especially if you're playing at a – an MLS Next Academy or an ECNL Academy or something like that. Somebody almost always is watching. Yep. Um, the last thing I have is, so there's, there's this argument 
that, you know, the soccer that you guys play, you know, isn't as, let me back up. So you guys don't, your players don't play high school soccer. And um, ECNL at the top end doesn't play high school soccer. Is that correct? Or do I have that wrong? It's club specific. Okay. Um, so what, there's obviously the part of, you know, playing in front of your your peers, you know, in school and that's missed out on. Um, you don't have like the lacrosse and football team rolling up and, and yelling at you and, and cheering you on and that sort of thing. And there's not the cheerleaders that you're, you know, you know, you're not playing in front of a girl you're trying to impress and that sort of thing usually. So, uh, you know, how do you get a kid used to or understanding what that feeling is like um, for when they go to the next level, when there is a crowd and when there are people there, you know, maybe saying something that that's going to distract them or that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's a really, that's a really good question. And it's, and it's a thing that's, it's a little bit, as Chris said earlier, you kind of throw them in the deep end at a certain point because look, you know, Atlanta United, if they've done anything right, it's that stadium because they get 50,000 packed out in that stadium every single game. We're not going to be able to prepare any player, you know, to walk out on that on that stadium and to, to see that amount of, of, of people. When I got to do it as a coach, I was blown away and I was 34 years old. So I cannot imagine your 17, 18 year old. But we do, you know, go to these bigger international events when we can. Generation Adidas Cup is a really good one locally. The playoffs are a good one. And maybe it's a little bit of a different crowd, but there's pressure because there's college coaches at every corner. There's agents at every corner, which is a different type of pressure. There's national team scouts on every corner. Um, so you don't get away from the eyeballs. Um, and, and here, you know, you play at the training ground. We don't let a lot of people in. And obviously, families can come in and support their kids. Um, but that's a little bit more of a, a learning environment where the, the kids are used to that environment. But we try to throw them in the deep end at certain times. Um, and, and we're actually far enough from COVID away now that, that we're really starting to push international travel. Um, we got our U14s going to Amsterdam for a tournament and we were pretty intentional working with some European academies to find a tournament where there was a crowd and it was like a cool cultural event and the flags are going and, and there's a walkout. We wanted to find something like that, like a really European cool atmosphere um, because we do want to prep them for that side of the game. It's a side that is hard to prep for. Um, and I do think, these kids miss out a little bit. I, I played high school for four years and loved it. I mean, it, it, it helped me in so many ways and helped me socially um, in a lot of different ways as well. So I do think the kids miss out on a little bit of that. It's one of those sacrifices that you make. There's pros and cons to every decision. Um, but we do try to help them through that. Um, but they deal with pressure. They deal with pressure just maybe from a different angle sometimes. Um, Norris, am I, am I missing anything from the college angle that uh, you wanted to bring up or should be brought up? No, I don't think so. Okay. Matt's pretty thorough. Yeah. Yeah. He is. I hope. Uh, so, yeah. Um, homegrown. Yeah, homegrown. That's right. That's right. Um, well, cool. Well, um, I'm going to hit stop, but uh, – say thank you to Matt officially, and then I'll hit stop on the record. Thanks for having me. This has been great.
Thank you for listening to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com slash matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on matchplayrecruit.com for our social media links. See you on the trail.